Good evening, ladies and gentlemen. My name is John Moser. I'm professor of history and chair of the Master of Arts in American History and Government program at Ashland University. Welcome to another edition of Documents in Detail, Teaching American History's webinar series in which we bring together thoughtful scholars to have a conversation about historically significant documents. We encourage all of you joining us today to participate in that conversation by submitting questions via the Q&A box, not the chat box. That's going to be reserved for providing you with information. Uh, but if you have questions, use the Q&A box. We'll try to get to as many of those questions as possible. Within the next week, you'll be receiving an email with links for, for further reading on the subject of, of tonight's program, as well as a link to the archived video and audio. The speeches, letters, and other writings that we're using for this year's webinars are all drawn from the various volumes in our core document series. They are also available at the Teaching American History's extensive document database located at tah.org. The subject of our program tonight comes from the volume on the judiciary. Here it is, edited by Joshua Dunn. The document in question is Lincoln's uh, at Lincoln's Dred Scott speech, and to help discuss it are the editor of that volume himself, that is Joshua Dunn, professor and chair of the Department of Political Science. He's also director of the study of government and the individual at the University of Colorado at Colorado Springs. He's joined tonight by Eric Sands, who is associate professor of government at Berry College. Both of these fine scholars are also faculty members at Ashland University's master's program in American history and government. Josh, Eric, welcome. Glad you could be here tonight. Thank you. It's great to be with you. So as I always tend to start out these things, uh, I, I, I direct this primarily at, uh, at, at the editor, although uh, you're certainly welcome to chime in as well, Eric. Uh, when trying to come up with a short, a reasonably short list of documents to be included in this volume, why does this one make the cut? Yeah, so the, the volume is supposed to be focused around core questions about judicial power throughout American history. What's the role of the Supreme Court should be uh, in our constitutional system? So then that gets to questions like judicial review and judicial supremacy. And this speech by Abraham Lincoln offers, I think, his fullest presentation of his view of the role of the power of the courts. And it, of course, comes after the Dred Scott decision, an in infamous decision. And we see him expressing some skepticism about what today we would regard as a, an accepted power that the court would have, which is judicial review, but really judicial review meaning judicial supremacy. That is, it's the final and ultimate interpreter of the Constitution. And in this speech, Abraham Lincoln clearly rejects that. Uh, he thinks that that's incompatible with, with our constitutional system. And he sets out a standard for what he thinks should make a decision, what he calls fully settled, that is beyond criticism, and we just have to accept it. And I think one of the interesting questions is, when you look at his standard for what counts as a fully settled decision, are there any decisions from Supreme Court history that whatever counts as fully settled? Or is the exercise of judicial review simply another invitation for more discussion and dialogue among the branches of government. Hmm. Hmm. Eric, care to add to that? Yeah, uh, I, I think this document is also significant for the, the political context of, of the period. Um, Republicans were trying to figure out how to respond to the Dred Scott decision. Uh, you know, they, they wanted to attack it, obviously. 
Um, but there wasn't really a meeting of the minds on exactly how to do it. Uh, and so a lot of the early criticism of the opinion uh, focused on whether or not Tani's opinion was really authoritative uh, or whether it was dicta. Um, there was a lot with how many of the justices actually signed on to the opinion versus, you know, uh, uh, not really signing on and uh, doing these other kind of things. Lincoln is the one that really takes it in a new direction um, and focuses more on this role of the judiciary in the constitutional system. Um, you know, he he takes this to uh, an entirely different level uh, instead of focusing just exclusively on the case uh, to thinking about what the role of the court actually is in constitutional mm -hmm. democracy. Uh, and especially this idea that, you know, we have recognized the court having um, this uh, uh, power of judicial review. But, you know, if, if that's going to go unquestioned, then what about this finality power? Uh, what about this idea that, you know, aside from a constitutional amendment, there's no way of overturning a Supreme Court decision short of the court doing it itself. Hmm. Um, and Lincoln paved some new ground in terms of thinking about, you know, just how permanent a Supreme Court decision is and, you know, perhaps how you can make some inroads into undermining a decision that you disagree with. Hmm. Very interesting. So uh, can we talk some some more about the context for this? I think probably most uh, most of us are, are aware of Dred Scott, uh, but maybe you could just say a, a bit about the about the case and its significance and, and why Republicans felt so strongly called upon to comment on this. Sure. So uh, obviously the Dred Scott decision ruled that blacks could never be citizens, also overturned the Missouri Compromise. Uh, the very slender thread that was keeping the nation from descending uh, into civil war. Uh, the Supreme Court thought that it was going to be resolving this controversy for us uh, permanently, and it, it did nothing of, uh, of, the, of the sort. Um, for the Republicans, and, and particularly those who were anti-slavery, anti uh, it does raise these questions about what are your alternatives now? Uh, if if you accept the idea uh, that the Supreme Court is the final and ultimate interpreter, which seems Eric pointed out, you have no no alternative but uh, to pass an amendment. Uh, that doesn't that doesn't seem uh, very likely. Uh, so it it did put them in uh, something of a bind. Although there were earlier presidents uh, who also articulated. Not not in the same way that Lincoln did, but articulated a position that that also did not uh, cede to the Supreme Court court ultimate interpretive authority. Uh, Thomas Jefferson did not believe in judicial supremacy. Andrew Jackson, who Lincoln also quotes in this in in this speech, uh, did did not believe in uh, ju judicial judicial supremacy. Uh, so uh, that for, particularly those who oppose slavery, the question is. If you if you accept this, uh, are you just stuck with it, or do you have to hope that you can transform the constitution of the Supreme Court that en enough justices retire or, or die at just the right time, so that you can replace them with people who are going to be more amenable to your your position on uh, on on this issue? Sorry, <laughs> Eric, you, uh, you care to add to that? Yeah, um, 
the part of his opinion dealing with slavery in the territories uh, is very significant for the Republicans because that was their main platform position, <laughs> um, was the idea that the Constitution gave Congress the power to ban slavery in the territories. And Tawney turns around and says, no, it doesn't. Uh, you can't ban slavery in the territories. Uh, so this had the potential of significantly undermining the Republican Party. Um, not, I think, to the extent that the Republicans were, you know, on some path to, uh, to, to dissolve or, you know, disappear as a result of Dred Scott. Um, but for them, this was a bit of an identity crisis if, uh, you know, Tawney's opinion went unchallenged. Uh, this is, this is a plank they really needed, um, to unite their party and, uh, to, to, you know, get, get the North in support of what they wanted. Um, I think the other thing that's significant about it is that this is an attempt at judicial statesmanship on the part of Tawney. Uh, so, you know, I I believe Tawney really thought he was saving the country in what he was doing. Um, I mean, obviously, it goes completely the other way. <laughs> um, and there may be some important lessons in that about the dangers of judicial statesmanship. Um, but... I, I, I'll I just leave it at that, that I, I think Tawney really thought he was doing something good for the country and that this was going to resolve a lot of the tension over slavery. That's that's a really interesting point. I was I was I was just about to ask the question of whether Tawney was really thinking this is a way to 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 nail the Republicans or or. Yeah. I mean, I'm wondering if if, if each of you could say a little bit more about Tawney's thinking on this subject. Uh, so I, I've always thought that Tawney thought that he was doing something good for the republic. Uh, that he was by through this decision, he was going to now remove it from public controversy. It's going to be settled as a matter as a matter of constitutional doctrine, and everyone can just move on. And so we don't have to we don't have to worry about it uh, anymore. I will say it's interesting if people are not aware of this, but earlier in his career, Tawney had the completely opposite position on slavery. Uh, gave a very famous speech in defense of a, a, a minister who had uh, uh, in Maryland who had made some anti-slavery uh, comments at a, a public revival meeting, if I recall. And he essentially gave the same position on slavery and the Declaration of Independence that Lincoln had much, much later. So that indicates something important, that something important had changed in American society from 1819 uh, to, to the Dred Scott decision. It's all encapsulated in the transformation of uh, Chief Justice Taney's uh, thinking on slavery. Yeah, and I'll add to that, 1819 is also when Taney emancipated his own slaves. Um, so this is a guy who, you know, I, I don't know if he was completely anti-slavery, but certainly didn't hold with a pro-slavery view of things and undergoes, as Josh said, a real transformation over the coming decades uh, where he becomes firmly a Southern partisan um, and remains so into the Civil War. Uh, you know, this he was he was a Democratic copperhead um, through and through during the war. Uh, and, you know, compared to the other members of the court who became staunch unionists, um, Tawney never wavered in his belief that the South was justified in seceding. Hmm. Yet he didn't leave the court. No. Yeah. Yeah. 
Uh, Eric uh, Salat, or Salat, I'm sorry if I'm mangling your name, um, asks a couple of questions that are related, so I'm going to ask both of them. Was Lincoln's understanding of the role of the Supreme Court common at the time, and was there a very strong reaction against Dred Scott in the United States? So on, on the question of Lincoln's position, as I mentioned, you did have uh, others, and I, I would actually say, in general, the position on what the power of the Supreme Court should be was uninformed early in the American Republic. Uh, but if I think if you had to say that there was one position that that was um, more popular than others or more supported than others, it was it was not judicial supremacy. It was a kind of departmentalism, and that's the idea that each department of government actually has the authority to and obligation to interpret interpret the Constitution. So the Supreme Court does not have a monopoly of this. But over the next few decades, you start to see a move towards people making arguments in defense of judicial supremacy. So in the battle over the Andrew Jackson's veto of the the, the bank bill, uh, was Daniel Webster gives a speech uh, in, in response, arguing essentially what it starts off sounding kind of departmentalist, but ends up looking a little bit like judicial supremacy. And then by the time you get to the 1850s, you have people like Stephen Douglas who are giving full-throated defenses of, of judicial supremacy. So at this time, I still think that you, it would have not been uncommon to find people uh, like Lincoln who thought that Supreme Court opinions were not uh, fully binding until until full uh, until fully settled. Uh, but we were moving in the direction of judicial supremacy. And you had again Stephen Douglas in his response to Lincoln says, "Well, if you don't believe in judicial supremacy, you just don't believe in the rule of law." Uh, and so uh, that's uh, uh, you know pretty full throated defense of it. Um, and again, you saw earlier statements moving in that direction, but Douglas, I think, takes it to its uh, fullest development in his response to Lincoln. Uh, in terms of reaction to the case, it was entirely predictable. Um, Republican newspapers vilified Tawney, um, uh, vilified uh, the court's majority uh, that uh, formed the opinion. Um, denounced the opinion as the death knell of the Republic, um, as part of a vast conspiracy uh, to try to spread slavery throughout the entire Union. Um, so, I mean, it was a, a, a very intense attack, uh, but in particular on Tawny himself. Now, some of that was because Tawny brought it on himself. Uh, he didn't release his opinion right away um in in the case uh the two dissenters believing that tawny was going to release his opinion released theirs and so what people had access to initially were the dissents and the dissents characterization of tawny's opinion well tawny was so angry about the dissents and what they had said which he felt like was a personal attack on him um, that he withheld his opinion for, I think, a couple of months and actually added about one-third to the length and added citations um, and further evidence to support his positions in the opinion so that he could try to nail down uh, what the dissenters had, had taken him to task for uh, and then finally got his opinion out later. Um, but uh, the South obviously heralded the opinion. Uh, they, they, you know, said he was he was saving the Union, uh, that this would finally bring the slavery issue to an end. 
Uh, Northern Democrats, for the most part, heralded the opinion. Um, so, I, you know, the, the partisans and the positions that they generally took on slavery at the time, you know, kind of matched up with, um, you know, what what the uh, the opinion had held. What can you tell me about the, the makeup of the court at the at the time? Uh, there are two dissenters plus plus Tawny. What, what about the the other six? Do you know anything uh, uh, about them? Um, I believe, I believe seven are Democrats, um, two are Republicans, or uh, two are Whigs, excuse me. Um, and I want to say about five or six are from the North, and the others are Southerners. Um, but, you know, the, the slavery issue doesn't break purely along sectional grounds. It doesn't break purely with along partisan grounds. Um, so there's a lot of mixing and matching that goes on. And the justices in the case were all over the map in terms of what they wanted to do. Uh, a, a guy named Justice Nelson was actually who wrote the initial opinion for Dred Scott. Um, until later on, Wayne and I think Curtis were, came back and voted that they go back to conference and take a new vote on how they wanted to decide the case. So, I mean, this this case went on for, what was it, Josh, better part of a decade, didn't it? I um, think so, yeah. It, it was a long, it it was a long forever. time. Yeah. And right. it was at the court for a very long time as well. So uh, Tiffany Fannin uh, asks, uh, she said, I, I read the longer version of, of this speech. Obviously, you use the, 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 the section of it that speaks directly to his opinion on judicial supremacy. Um, I'm having difficulty understanding the relevance of the first part about Utah and polygamy. Can you provide insight? Oh yeah, that's a good question. Uh, so my uh, so my recol my recollection on on, on that was uh, whether or not they could have the authority to it was whether or not they could the federal government could have the authority to actually ban uh, ban polygamy. So trying to make it similar to the question of uh, of of slavery, uh, and that's why Lincoln was was bringing that up. Where Douglas was, uh, his position was popular sovereignty, leave it to the individual states to decide, um, and removing the authority from the federal government. Uh, and so I, I think that that was Lincoln's reason for, uh, for, for including that. Are you actually going to say that we should allow them to join the union as a, pol as a polygamous state? Um, and under Jug Douglas's reasoning, how could you actually uh, forbid that? Um, Eric, did you want to add anything? No, I, I think that's ex exactly right. I mean, he's utilizing, you know, Douglas's argument against him and essentially saying if, you know, again, if slavery is moral, then anything um, has to be moral. Um, and so how could we outlaw polygamy um, if a state wanted to incorporate it as, as in part of its laws? Um, it's also important to realize that, you know, Douglas was badly affected by the Dred Scott decision. Um, his whole, you know, his his whole political uh, game was popular sovereignty. Um, and what Dred Scott basically said was, you can't 
prohibit slavery in the territories, which means you can't use popular sovereignty as a basis for deciding the slavery issue in the territories. Uh, and so, you know, Douglas is in this kind of weird position where He's, he wants to defend the the opinion um, because I think he genuinely believed it was authoritative and, you know, the Supreme Court had made it. But at the same time, it, it kind of undermined his his pet project of popular sovereignty um, and made it harder for him to argue that this was the way that slavery should be dealt with um, in the territorial areas. Let's see. Uh, Richard Rago asks, Lincoln cites the results of the 1850 federal census pertaining to the number of mulattoes in the free states. Was there any pushback in regards to him mentioning these numbers and further encouraging the mixture of the races? Yeah, I, I don't know. Um, I know Lincoln, he tried to be very careful about when he would bring these up. Uh, these these kinds of uh, que questions up. So it, in certain parts of Southern Illinois, he would be uh, much more careful um, in his language rather than uh, as in, in, in compared to uh, when he's up in the middle or northern part of the state. But I, I'm not I'm not sure if he was attacked for actually bringing that up in this in this speech. Yeah, not that I know of. Um, certainly in the Lincoln Douglas debates, he brings up the fact that if you're worried about miscegenation, then you should want to end slavery as quickly as possible. <laughs> um, because, you know, where this is going on is on the southern plantations. Um, it's it's not really a northern issue. And he did take a fair amount of, of flack for for making that uh, observation uh, that was that was considered by a lot of people as hitting below the belt, um, but you know all's fair in love and war, I guess. So uh, Lincoln Lincoln made the made the attack anyway. What about the reaction more generally to this speech? Is there? A, yeah, I don't. I mean, I, I think it again tracks fairly closely along partisan lines is uh, my, my understanding of it. The Republicans saw it as a, uh, 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 a good way forward uh, to go after uh, the decision uh, and the, and the, and, and the Supreme court. Um, and of course, Democrats were not terribly excited about it. Uh, so that's, that's always, uh, but it may, it, maybe Eric would know if there was, there was something unusual in the response to it, but that's, that, that's how I've, I've, I've always understood the response. You know, that's my understanding as well. And, and I, I think this is just part of this interesting period in Lincoln's life where he is becoming a national figure. Um, he's not just a local, you know, or state politician anymore. He's now getting onto the national stage. Uh, he's becoming a name that people are getting familiar with, not as much as when he delivers the House Divided speech, um, and certainly not as renowned as when he gets into the, the, the you know, the meat of the Lincoln-Douglas debates. But, um, you know, he's, he's getting noticed for speeches like this, and uh, that's going to have important implications for 1860. I, I, have, to I have to wonder, given all of the ways in which Abraham Lincoln was successful and ways in which he moved the needle of American politics. Why on this issue is he taking a position that 
or not so much why is he taken, but why is the position that he held on this issue regarded? I mean, you know, today, if you articulated this, you'd probably be dismissed as some kind of radical, right? Well, I think there's a, that, that people are coming back to Lincoln's uh, position. There's been scholarship over the last 30 to 40 years uh, asking whether or not judicial supremacy is, is actually compatible with our constitutional system. What did the founders uh, think the power of the, the Supreme Court should be? Uh, and you've seen it from all ideological sides, conservatives, uh, liberals. Uh, ra- raising this question about uh, about about judicial power, I would also say that you can see other presidents after Lincoln who came very close, maybe not not quite as um, clearly. Uh, they might ha- have had to hide their position on this, uh, but coming close to I think Lincoln's position, obviously FDR uh, with his battles with the, the Supreme Court uh, tries to undermine the uh, the Supreme Court in significant ways, uh, indicating a certain lack of respect for the finality of Supreme Court decisions. Uh, After the Supreme Court struck down the line item veto, Bill Clinton gave a response uh, that sounded an awful lot like he didn't fully buy into judicial supremacy. Uh, President Obama, in his State of the Union address um, after the Citizens United decision, if you read at least between the lines, um, he, he's essentially calling on Congress to help him help uh, him correct uh, this this mistake. And if you believe in judicial su- supremacy, there's no such thing as correcting the uh, a, a, a constitutional decision of the Supreme Court outside of an amendment. And that didn't seem to be what uh, President Obama uh, was was ar- ar- arguing for. So I actually think that um, it's been there. It's just become so embedded in the kind of popular consciousness and also in the, the minds of some of our political figures as well. Well, it's the, the Supreme Court gets to, gets to settle all of this uh, for us. Um, and uh, I, I wouldn't be surprised, though, to, to, to see this Lincoln's position be resuscitated even more. Eric, any uh... Any thoughts on this? Yeah, I mean, I've I've read some scholarship uh, over the past decade uh, that has made some similar kinds of suggestions that Lincoln makes. Um, I mean, not identical, but you know, suggesting maybe that when the court interprets the Constitution, something more than a simple majority should be required. Um, you know, maybe a, a super majority of seven um, or even unanimous, um, which would be much in line with what Lincoln says should be in place for there to be a precedent. Um, you know, this I- and, uh, you know, this idea about uh, important judicial issues being relitigated before they become settled. Well, I think we kind of see that going on uh, before the court. Mm-hmm. Um, it, it seems like nothing is completely settled with the Supreme Court these days where these cases come up. I mean, I think about D.C. v. Heller um, and, you know, we just have one, you know, McDonald comes after and then, you know, we're looking at a whole bunch of these Second Amendment cases that are in the queue. Uh, whether the court takes them or not, I don't know. But, you know, the potential is there for them to have to give a lot of additional rulings um, before this becomes, you know, what Lincoln, I think, would call settled law. Um, so I don't know. I I don't 
think it's as crazy um, and and maybe as radical as some people would would suggest it is. Um, and at least there are a few people out there that that are actually embracing some of these ideas. Hmm. It, it puts me in mind of uh, Amy Coney Barrett's uh, uh, confirmation hearings where she's asked, is is uh, Roe v. Wade settled law or something like that? And she said, well, it's, you know, it's the law. It's the Supreme Court has, has, has upheld it. And later on, she was accused of having lied for help voting to uh, voting to overturn it. But of course, you're, it's it's settled law until it's not, right? Yeah. Right. Yeah. Um, and that's what they all say. And that's why these questions that every who doesn't matter which party has nominated uh, someone to be on the Supreme Court, you get these questions in the Senate Judiciary Committee uh, where they will ask them about, well, you support uh, uh, precedent and stare decisis. And really what's going on there is that uh, the senator is saying, you will uphold the precedents I like, right? And, and you'll strike down the ones I don't like, right? <laughs> so that's, uh, yeah, it, it, no one is actually terribly serious, I think, about that. If you could actually get them to be honest with you, uh, because re- really it's just that, they, you know, uh, some people on one side tend to like certain kinds of precedents and people on the other like others, and they, they want the ones they don't like to uh, to uh, to be struck uh, to be struck down, and it's per- fully legitimate to say it's settled law. <laughs> it was settled law, um, but as you said, it was until it wasn't. Eric, yeah, um, yeah. This the this the the way that the uh, confirmation process works today with the uh, the litmus tests um, that the the uh, nominees you know have to answer um, usually by non-answering. Um, you know, I really like uh, the the companion article that Josh picked uh, to the Lincoln speech, the one by Stephen Douglas, um, because Douglas, I think, makes a very compelling argument, you know, that you don't want to have a Supreme Court that is handpicked just to overturn a precedent. Um, that's going to lose the respect of the American people, and it's going to lose respect for the court. Um, this is just going to create a highly partisan, highly ideological body that nobody's going to have any trust and respect in. Um, and, you know, arguably that's exactly what we had in the Dred Scott case, uh, was a highly partisan ideological body um, uh, that, that ruled in the way that it did. Um, but yeah, I, I, there's not a lot with Stephen Douglas I find myself agreeing on. <laughs> um, but this is one thing that I think he may have a point, uh, that you, you really don't want um, to have these litmus tests as, as part of the confirmation process. Richard Rago uh, brings up ex parte Merriman, um, in which Lincoln disregards Tani's decision. On what on what basis does he do so? Well, it was a circuit court decision. It wasn't a Supreme Court yeah. decision. Um, Tawny makes it it makes the the ruling in his capacity as a circuit court judge, um, just to make sure that Lincoln didn't miss the fact that he had ruled. He mailed a copy of the opinion to Lincoln in the White House. Uh, had it hand delivered to Lincoln there. And Lincoln just ignored it. Um, he he just paid no attention to it. And that's 
That's basically how Lincoln dealt with Tawney while he was in the White House. He just ignored him. Uh, Tawney, in his capacity as a circuit court judge, did make a, a couple of, of, of rulings that struck down uh, various things that the Lincoln administration was doing in the prosecution of the war. They just ignored him, just paid no attention to him at all. Um, I, I don't know if that made Tawney frustrated. Uh, I don't know what his reaction to that was, but Lincoln, I think, had nothing but contempt for him. Um, but we never got the interesting question of what if Tawney had ruled the way he did in his capacity as a Supreme Court justice? You know, would would Lincoln have ignored him then um, or would Lincoln have acted differently? But we don't know. Do, um, do either of you know, did, did Lincoln and Tawney ever come face to face? Maybe at, at some point, uh-huh. but but. But during or after this this case, they clearly did not like each other. Yeah, I, I don't know. <laughs> that, that would be interesting if they uh, actually were in each other's presence after it. I, I would tend to doubt it um, just because Lincoln wasn't running in Washington circles. Um, and Tawney lived in Washington um, after his daughter and his wife died. Uh, he sold their house and moved to D.C. Um, and bought a house there. Um, and Lincoln just, I mean, he wasn't he wasn't a D.C. resident. He wasn't visiting the, the Capitol. Um, so I, I don't think there would have been an opportunity for the two, the two of them to cross paths. But I, I, I've been wrong before. Uh, Michael Mountner asks, um, Don Fehrenbacher's book, The Dred Scott Decision, used to be the only authoritative study, but it's over 30 years old now. Is there something more recent on the subject? Uh, I'm not aware uh, of uh, of anything else that would be um, – I mean, there are always books that will deal with Dred Scott, but as far as just uh, uh, you know, kind of a comprehensive treatment of the case overall, I'm not, I'm not aware of one. Uh, Fehrenbacher is still authoritative, um, and I honestly don't know how it's going to be improved upon. I mean, it's it's more of a tome than it is a book. <laughs> uh, I mean, it runs about 500 pages and deals with just every aspect of the case. Um, it's it's a great read, by the way. Uh, if if you haven't looked at it before, um, it it doesn't. It doesn't get heavily into legalese. It's it's very readable um, for a scholarly work, um, but uh, that's that's still the authoritative one that I know of. While we are on the subject of books, Richard Rago uh, says he's interested in Justice Tawney. Are there uh, what are the are there go to books oh, on on Tawney? I'm sure there must be a biography of him that is uh, con- considered comprehensive, uh, but it's not coming to mind. So um, uh, mostly I've read about him just in the context of, uh, uh, well, of course, Dred Scott, but then just uh, larger judi- uh, judicial issues. So I, 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 I don't know of one. Uh, the book I'm most familiar with is, is a book called Tawny and Lincoln. Um, so it's it's a book about the kind of interaction between the two, um, especially based on the Dred Scott decision. Um, but I don't 
I, I haven't come across uh, just a biography of Tawny. I mean, it's Josh said, I'm sure there has to be one. Um, I just, I'm not familiar with it. First Catholic Supreme Court justice. And I often yeah. wondered if his, if his Catholicism had any, had any impact on, so you could find Catholics on all sides of that issue. All right. Well, since he changed his mind, uh, I don't know that it, it did. <laughs> um, uh, it, well, it's interesting, though, if, 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 if 1819 is when he gives the what approximates an anti-slavery decision, if his change of heart didn't coincide with the rise of the slavery as positive good theory, which is what, what the 1830s, that, that yeah. really comes about. Oh, yeah, I think he must have been influenced by that. No. Mm -hmm. Uh, what kind of effect did the Eric Sallet asks? Uh, did what kind of effect did the the, uh, the Dred Scott decision have on the anti-slavery movement? Well, I mean, I, they they obviously re responded strongly against it. I do think it um, galvanized uh, the 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 anti-slavery uh, anti-slavery movement, um, and. Uh, you know, again, what do you do in the case of a Supreme Court decision? What are, what are your options? Um, in those types of circumstances, uh, it's not clear that you have any other than something more aggressive. Uh, so I, I'm guessing uh, that that's, that was the primary effect on, uh, on the anti-slavery movement uh, to, to, to really galvanize them and make them willing to, to be uh, more assertive uh in and pressing their position it, it also had the effect of pushing a lot more anti-slavery men into the republican party um there was sort of an awareness that if the court isn't going to be on our side in this um then we're going to have to win this at the ballot box um and that's going to start with we've got to take the presidency in 1860 um, and, you know, that means, you know, uh, anti-slavery Democrats have got to come to terms with the fact that the Democratic Party overall has become a pro-slavery party. Uh, and it's time to make that switch um, over to the Republican Party uh, and start voting Republican uh, in elections. Uh, so I, I think it did help, um, among other things. So uh, I think another major factor was the Lecompton Constitution. Um, so the fight over that uh, also pushed a lot of people in the Republican direction. Uh, but those things kind of combined um, give the Republicans a big boost uh, and in doing so, of course, gives anti-slavery forces a big boost as well. Hmm. Okay. Uh, Kelly Sparrow asks a question directly related to the speech. Lincoln's list of criteria for determining whether a case is fully settled includes, quote, with the steady practice of the departments throughout our history, unquote. I always have trouble explaining what this means and giving some examples to my students. Can you elaborate on that? So, and Eric might uh, have some other thoughts on that. I'm going to pull pull it uh, back. I pull the, the the speech back up so I can 
uh, look at all of them in, in context because some of them sound uh, kind of say, yes, this comes right before based on assumed uh, historical uh, historical facts. Uh, so I think um, my understanding of this, and because I don't think he actually fully explains it elsewhere in the in, in the speech, um, is it, it. I think it relates to this exercise of the power of judicial review. Uh, that this was an unusual act uh, by the by the Supreme Court, um, and you know this is the first time since Marbury versus Madison. That the Supreme Court had exercised this power in relation to a federal 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 statute, so that's uh, that's been uh, my my understanding of it. But I understand the question because it is it's not entirely clear what he what he means by that. Some of the other ones are much more obvious, um, particularly the last one there, uh, which I end up thinking I think is the most important one for him, at least when when it comes to Dred Scott. Hmm. Eric. Yeah, I I agree with Josh on this. I I think this one is a little vague on Lincoln's part. Um, I, I'm not. I I've never been entirely sure what he's referring to uh, when he talks about the steady practice of the departments throughout our history. Um, you know, it it could just be a reference to uh, you know a consistency and continuity in public policy. Um, so you know. Talking here about the slavery compromises. Um, so the Compromise of 1850, the Kansas-Nebraska Act. Um, Dred Scott is a sharp departure uh, from those compromises. Uh, and so when you have a Supreme Court decision where the court is kind of running off on its own and doing something completely different, I think Lincoln is saying it casts a certain shadow over what they're doing and raises some suspicion that they're up to something um, as opposed to, uh, you know, just carry, just interpreting the law. Uh, Austin Valentine asks, what if Lincoln never responded to the Dred Scott decision? Among the three of you, well, I'm going to say among the two of you, how do you feel about the, pu the public's opinion of Lincoln north and south? Would it have affected his popularity among fellow Republicans? Would it have created a much different opinion among Southerners? Of course, the I beauty of counterfactuals is you cannot yeah, be wrong. I don't know. Yeah, I don't, I, Eric might have a bit better sense uh, uh, of, of that. Uh, I get, my guess is that it probably, if he hadn't responded, it probably wouldn't have changed the South's position on him. Uh, the House divided speech um, probably cemented their opinion about Lincoln much more more than this did. For Republicans, maybe it would have if he hadn't given this speech. Maybe it, it, it wouldn't have he uh, wouldn't have been able to build his base of support as much. But I don't know. That's just that's just kind of guessing. Oh, no, I agree with you entirely. I I think it's the House divided speech that really puts Lincoln on the map uh, more than anything. Um, and I think really forms the Southern view of Lincoln. Uh, you know, Douglas takes Lincoln to task for the House divided speech. Um, the Southern press just eviscerates him um, for what they perceive as a direct attack um, on Southern culture and uh, on Southern values. Um, the South is so sensitive right now. Uh, I mean, it, it takes almost nothing um, to get their dander up, uh, you know, about the slavery issue um, that, 
you know, Lincoln criticizing this this judicial decision, I mean, the South doesn't really care all that much because they won <laughs> the decisions in their favor. Um, and there's nothing Lincoln can really do about that other than win the election in 1860 and start appointing Republican judges that can then overturn the decision. Um, and that's something they become deathly afraid of and actually becomes one of the big reasons they end up seceding. Um, but, uh, yeah, I, to me, the House divided his speech is where, is where Lincoln really um, starts to set his mark uh, for both the Republican Party, but also how Southerners perceive him. So this doesn't have really any effect on how Southerners view him, but but you said earlier on that this helps cement his reputation among Republicans. Who who were his major rivals within within the party at this point? Well, the big one was Seward. Um, You know, this this is this is the guy he's going to be up against in 1860. Um, Seward was considered the the heir apparent to the presidency in 1860. Um, Fremont, to some extent, um, you know, he had a actually a very good showing in 1856, uh, given that the party was brand new um, and they hadn't had a lot of time to put together, you know, a political machine uh, to support their election efforts. Uh, so I, I, I think Fremont is there in the mix as well. Um, and then there's, you know, certain radicals uh, that are out there, um, the, the, the Sumners, the Thaddeus Stevens, uh, that are loud voices. They're unelected. Electable. I mean, you, they, you know, they they can get elected in Massachusetts. They can get elected up in New England and stuff. But I mean, nationally, they'd never be able to get elected. But they still have a lot of influence in the party, um, and so Lincoln's got to appease a lot of these these different personalities and a lot of these different groups. Um, and you know, House Divided, like I said, is is a brilliant speech in in that way because. In saying something that sounds like just a logical statement about how the House divided cannot stand, he at once comes across as a radical and as somebody who's just stating the obvious. (laughs) And so it becomes... What is Lincoln? Well, it depends on where you are and how you're looking at him. Um, and Lincoln, of course, can dodge and weave. Uh, and well, no, no, I didn't mean that, and I wasn't really saying that. And um, you know, he's a consummate politician. So you know, this is this is just incredibly well played by him. Uh, Tiffany Fannin asked, uh, I, and, I, and I don't know if what extent this is answerable. What was public opinion of the Supreme Court in the 1840s and 1850s? How did ordinary people regard it? Obviously, without public, without polling, uh, that's tough to. Yeah, that's a good question. It's tough to. That's tough to say. I I, I really don't know. I, I do think that you can say that because of the Marshall Court. Uh, that in general, the court was held in a fairly high regard. Uh, because the Marshall Court, and this actually, I think, helped establish the pattern of obeying Supreme Court decisions, which then ends up help, uh, helping entrench judicial judicial supremacy. Because there were lots of issues that would, came up during the Marshall Court 
that people regarded as incredibly controversial. No matter what the Supreme Court says on this, people are going to be furious. And then the Marshall Court ended up issuing a lot of decisions in these cases that people thought, well, they, they kind of got that right. Um, and, uh, and, and so it created this expectation that the Supreme Court kind of plays things straight. Um, and so if I, if I had to say, I, I think I would say that the court certainly was still drafting off of the prestige uh, and reputation that uh, Marshall had built for the court. And that was a very difficult task because, of course, early in his tenure, the uh, Democratic Republicans couldn't stand uh, the, the Supreme Court and the, and the judiciary. But by the time he passed away, the Supreme Court had become a much more powerful and respected institution. Sure. Yeah, Tawny was also, for most of his career on the court, quite conservative. Um, he doesn't really write any shocking opinions. <laughs> um, we, we don't even really study any of his, his opinions uh, until we get to Dred Scott. Um, uh, you know, you, you've got you've got Luther V. Borden and, and some others and stuff that uh, that he writes. But, you know, it's, it's not until Dred Scott that he really has his coming out. Um, and, uh, you know, people really start to take notice of him. I will say this, though. Southerners, in particular, had a very high regard for the court. And the evidence for that is that they were pushing throughout the 1850s for the court to resolve the slavery issue. That's where they wanted slavery resolved, um, was take it to the court, take the territorial questions to the court, let the court resolve these things. Now, obviously, part of that is because they perceived that they had a majority um, on the court and that whatever decision was handed down uh, was was going to be favorable to them. But, you know, uh, that's not entirely clear <laughs> just looking at the judges um, at that time exactly what's going to happen if this case gets before the court at this time. Uh, so there's a little bit of a crapshoot there uh, about what the court is going to do. And uh, there's there's certainly within the South uh, a kind of abiding respect uh, for the court and its decisions. I don't really know much about the opinion of the court in the North. Um, I'm not sure what public opinion was uh, about the judiciary there. I can tell you it went South and awfully quickly after Dred Scott. <laughs> um, but uh, before that, I'm, I'm just not sure. Went south, pardon the pun. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> uh, you know, it's it's funny you should mention Luther V. Borden because almost simultaneously with those words coming out of your mouth, we got a question from Richard Rago asking how come we rarely hear about his decision in Luther V. Borden. In fact, I'd never heard of it. Oh. So why you know, why haven't we? Um, yeah, what? yeah. Mainly because there aren't uh, I, a lot of other cases that would then uh, raise the same issues. As, <laughs> and I think that's the that's the pri that's the primary reason. Um, but you know, um, yeah. Eric, any? No, I, I think that's I think that's right. There's just. Um, 
you know, I, I'm not a lot of these issues are making their way to the Supreme Court. You know, people aren't bringing these issues to the court. Um, and they're not choosing to take a lot of these cases uh, that would, you know, allow them to set down real precedent. But it is remarkable that during the, the 40s and 50s, there is just nothing um, in Tawny's record to indicate that he was capable of the kind of judicial activism you saw in Dred Scott. Um, it, it really does just come out of left field um, and I think surprised a lot of people. Um, but once again, uh, as I said at the beginning, I think he thought he was saving his country. And because of that, he was willing to take the risk and and try to do what was necessary. Um, another question about sources. Are there any books about how the people at the time thought about race? Clearly, Southerners had their own opinion, but were was there some scientific work out there, such as Darwin or anthropological work done at the time, which would have influenced racial views? I mean, Fitzhugh, I guess, yeah. comes to, comes yeah. to my mind as a non-specialist. Yeah. Um, yeah, I'm certain that, that there were. I, I, I'm more familiar with some of the uh, work from the the 1700s, which I do think actually ended up influencing some of the Southerners on this, but but I don't know, I, but I don't know that it pers persisted uh, into the into the you know, 1800s. Um, so yeah, I, uh, I I'm, I'm certain that, that, that there were, uh, but uh, yeah, Gobelin published the Inequality of the Races yeah. in 1853. I looked that up quickly. Okay, maybe that that would have been cited, but that's yeah, that is pretty close to. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Eric, any oh. thoughts on that? Uh, no, I mean, Fit, Fitzhugh would be one of my big sources for, yeah. you know, people reading right. about differences in race and, and forming racial views uh, at that time. Uh, there were certainly there were certainly other sociological and medical publications, a lot of medical publications uh, that came out mm -hmm. uh, that would you know, trace uh, what they, you know, they, they perceived as um, uh, laziness in the black race to certain uh, uh, mental conditions that they had um, that they thought maybe with further research they could, they could, you know, cure. Um, and, and I mean, some of the stuff is just unbelievable um, that, that they do, but, um, but no, nothing, nothing else specific comes to mind. Final question I, is one I always use to close the, these uh, these episodes. Uh, we have a group of, of teachers here, most if not all teachers. Uh, if you're give give them your best case for finding space in their limited curriculum for this document. Well, Abraham Lincoln uh, was an important figure in American political uh, history. And it's probably worth knowing his position on the power of the Supreme Court and the authoritativeness of judicial judicial decisions as a way of having a full picture of what how we should view the view, view the Supreme Court. And uh, I do think that that last uh, his last standard for fully settled uh, 
about about being based on assumed historical facts. I think that's deeply powerful. You might be the others you can maybe work with a little bit. Uh, but if you truly believe in judicial supremacy, what do you do when the court just makes stuff up? <laughs> what, what, what are your alternatives? Uh, and Lincoln brings the goods, right, obviously based on some of the dissents in, in, uh, in the Dred Scott decision. But Tani was just manufacturing things. He was saying things that are historically, empirically, objectively false. So what do you do in that circumstance? And this isn't the only instance, by the way, where the court has done, court has done this. Yeah, Eric. Yeah, um, I, I, I think it's worth including because it's you know sort of one of the origin points for Lincoln's national political career. Um, and you know, as Josh said, uh, uh, considerations about the power of the court, which is a really relevant issue today. Um, you know, how much power should the court have? You know, should it be the final authority? Should it have the last word? Um, these are all issues that Lincoln is exploring in this speech. Uh, and I think can be a, a nice springboard, uh, to talking about uh, a lot of those things, uh, with a, a familiar guy, um, that everybody's heard of. <laughs> all right. Well, I want to thank both of our panelists, Josh and Eric as well as uh, our participants for their great questions.